Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. We're back. We are back after, like, different differing plagues, right? Uh, like, one day we couldn't uh, do this because... Uh, we didn't want you driving up the hill to my house because there was of the snow. There was a crazy winter <laughs> storm, the likes of which we haven't seen since, I want to say since I was a kid. Which like, we sound pathetic because in Alberta, like they're laughing at us. Yeah, so, but okay. in like Tennessee, they call in the army when there's an inch. So right. I'm saying. Uh, and then I got a plague and mm-hmm. couldn't move. And as we discussed, I missed out on great leftovers, which I was really sad about. You missed out on Lunar New Year leftovers, my mother's Buddhist feast. Um, so I'm sorry for that. You'll have to wait another year. But yeah, I was dying and so we were gone and now we're back and I have an announcement. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's for you and everybody else, but it will become apparent why it's more for you. I'm ready. Based on a lot of things that have been happening in the past few weeks in the past, and things that we love and that we talk about, I am making a command decision to go back to my naturally ringlet hair. Really? Yeah. Okay. Is this inspired by Russian doll? Uh, I mean, it's been brewing for some time. Okay. I feel like uh, there's an actress who I should know who shows up on all the things. She's been on House of Lies and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I feel like she started the trend. I will figure out what her name is immediately after we record and be annoyed. Yeah. Um, like a year ago. Okay. And then we collectively spent the weekend cooing over my best friend's wedding after the yeah. uh, Entertainment Weekly release of... Yeah, the 22nd anniversary. Yes, which is... <laughs> sure. Now can we get them together? Fine. We can get them all. Do yeah. it. I don't care. Great. Um, and Russian Doll and obviously... Sandra O. Oh. Uh, yeah, Sandra O oh, and Broad City and all that press yeah. plays in here too. And I just, I've spent, I don't know, the last 12 years beating my curly hair into submission. Yeah. Um, I've done all the things and all the straightening irons and I'm like, I want to go back. Curly hair fascinates me. Why? Like it looks fake. Right. Like I, when I look at it and I see it, I, I want to know the scientific cellular whatever reason that it comes out like that because… I know the answer. I, okay. I'm just saying that like what we don't know and what is so foreign to us is fascinating. Like my hair doesn't grow like that. So actually, this is interesting. So actually, your hair is straight because your hairs are round. Think about it. If you have like a bunch of spaghetti or whatever, right? Yeah. The spaghetti is all round. So they sit alongside one another in a smooth formation. There are no edges to catch on one another. Right. Curly hairs themselves are flatter. So they don't, they bump up against each other. 
Oh, and they make each other bend. Yeah. Okay. Right? That said, I the way that I look when I get out of the shower now, today, is not the way that I looked when I got out of the shower at 20. Like, I can see that I have done some damage to my to my curls, and they will need some, like, encouragement to come back to their former glory. Well, don't they grow out, like, the way they grow out? Yeah, they do, but, like, I don't know. It's just not... When I was in uh, the Palmas a few weeks ago, the humidity and the salt and the whatnot made perfect curls, like straight out of the water, full Julia hair. Right. It was perfect. Um, here in the dry and the whatnot, it's not ideal, but, you know, I feel like I have time. I can be cultivating this back to life. Um, and the thing is, you can live a double life, right? You yeah. can go curly or straight if you wish to. Yes. Now, my debate, though, uh, where Russian Doll is concerned, where Broad City is concerned, is about the bang. Yep. You got it. I was, I'm making the, like, salute signal, I guess, the salute gesture. Yeah. But it is about bangs, because that's where I was taking you. Sandra O oh actually looks great in a curly bang, mm-hmm. um, which surprises me, because I, I didn't, if you had asked me if I thought an Asian woman could do a, a curly bang, I would have been like, mm, haven't seen it, so sounds weird, no. Right. But, of course, she's Sandra Oh and looks perfect, and that hair is an envy, like a lifetime envy. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. But it's a whole different shape of thing. Like, uh, Julia Roberts in Best Friend's Wedding, and really everything, has never done a bang. Um, So she has a slightly different haircut, right? Like, Sandra Oh's hair is more round and less... Somebody once told me, and you listeners, tell me if you agree, I worked with a woman early in my career who had curly hair and said to me, you know, Duanna, we curly-haired women only really get to have short wedge or long wedge (laughs) in terms of the shape of hair. And I I would add to that, you can have, essentially, beach ball. Uh, But Julia Roberts would be the visual of long wedge, right? right? Like it just sort of grows yes. down and exists. Um, so yeah, you can cut curly hair. The thing with curly bangs is you need a substantial bang. Mm-hmm. Like you have to really commit yeah. to that. Um, and then when you straighten, it might be like a weird extra layer. So I don't know for sure about that one. I don't, you can have a little wispy uh, straight bang and be like, oh, it's there. It's not there. Yeah. But you have to commit when your hair is curly. So that one I'm, I'm on the fence for, but you heard it here first. It's coming back. I look forward to seeing you in L.A. with your natural hair state. Oh, that'll be interesting because uh-huh. we're in L.A. Uh, as of recording time, we're in L.A. in less than two weeks. Yep. Um, and speaking of people who are whiners, have you heard L.A. talk about their rain? Oh, my God. It's a lot. I Hi, mean- guys. We love you. But like. <laughs> and you can't drive in the fucking rain. No, you guys are not good at that at all. But ergo, uh, it'll be interesting to see how basically desert climate, yeah. but possibly with rain, does with this hair. Yeah, I don't think we're getting good weather when we're getting there. No, it's true. Yeah, which we're used to. I mean, LA in February, I don't really remember liking the weather. It's been fine sometimes, but it also is some years you are like, here's my cool leather jacket and it's super hot and you wind up walking around your t-shirt all day. Yeah. Um, I have bought t-shirts in an emergency because I packed my cool weather LA wardrobe and then some years uh, it's freezing. I listened to a podcast where they were talking about the rain and they were like, we didn't move here for this. 
Because nobody in LA is from LA. No, it's true. Just like nobody from New York is from New York. Yeah. So they're like, we did not move here for this. I'm like, yeah, but didn't you have those fires a few months ago? This is good, right? I mean, it's extreme on all the ways to live there, yes. But yeah, I think they grow out of, they grow out of, out of, they stop being able to accommodate weather because it makes sense, right? If you never had rain, you'd be like, why is this umbrella clogging up my closet? Why don't I just use all the money I don't have to spend on a parka on awesome shoes? So it tailspins them. I can understand that. P.S. people, parkas are so expensive. It's true, but it makes sense because how long have you had your parka now? Three well, years, maybe? Yeah, I, I I now actually am one of those people who has three parkas. Yeah. So I got two new ones this year. Right. But my original, my OG parka is four years old. Right. But it makes sense because when you spend ungodly amounts of money on that parka, that is your uniform from November 30th to March 20th oh every single every day. Every fucking day. So we've settled the issue of your hair. For now, yeah, let's see. We look forward to it. Yeah, I mean, we might have to, I can only imagine Yasik's comments when he sees it. So uh, if Yasik ever makes a guest appearance, you'll know why, because he'll have some things to say. Yeah, so we've settled the hair and we're poised for LA. Yep. And it's, it's already showing itself. Oh, yeah. It's showing its ass. <laughs> you know, it's so true. I, I, today, as I was leaving to come over here, I saw the headline about uh, the four categories that have been kicked out of the broadcast yeah. uh, that they're not airing. What are they? Uh, I know um, Best Makeup is one of them. Maybe Cinematography. Uh, like these previously existing yeah. categories that are now not on the broadcast night. They're yeah. like, sorry, you're not important enough. Right. And people are going to be upset and this and that and the other. And it's a, I mean, listen, on one hand, because I'm an Oscar junkie, I fucking love all the drama around the Oscars. I love the races. I love that this year is a tight race. We don't know who's going to win. It's awesome. Um. And we said this before on our show that we are not the people who complain about the Oscars being too long. No. It's, <laughs> to use your quote that yeah. I know you will use the morning after, it's our Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, so yeah, nobody's ever like, oh, there's too much Super Bowl. Yeah. Like, no, it's great. What we complain about is if it's going to be five hours, which we wouldn't complain about, the quality of those five hours. Yes, for sure. But what they're doing by taking out those categories, and I really should find the other two, I, I want to say visual effects, but don't quote me, is they're making it more and more clear that this is not about movie making. This is not about the art of making films. Mm-hmm. This is about movie stars, period, the end. Right. Have they have they figured out if they can get movie stars to actually attend and present and if they can mollify the people who are annoyed because only two songs were going to be right. performed or and whatever. Now, yeah. Now all the songs will be performed, but they'll only be 90 seconds. I mean, all of this is to get within their stated goal of three hours. Which I'm sure is, you know, sure. That makes sense. Somebody somewhere is like, this is what's going to do it. More people will watch if they don't think they don't have to stay up so late. That's right. But also, 
Who cares? Exactly. Again, we're not that audience, right? We're not the people who are like, that show is too long. So it's never going to be, like, we're never going to be mollified by, like, I'm upset about it. Right. I feel like if I were working in those fields and those those people are artists, they work just as hard, they work just as long. I, I don't think that, yeah, I don't think this is the answer. No, it's, they're making it the movie star show and I yeah. get it, but no, it's not what it's for. And I think also Oscar purists would say that complaining about the length or the boring speeches is part of the point. Yes. You need time to go to the bathroom sometimes yes. or have a snack or a snarky tweet. Yes. But it's all about the movie stars. And uh, our first story is like the meta snake eating its tail example <sighs> of that. Mm-hmm. It, like, it... Like, it seems like parody. Uh, yeah, it, it does seem like parody. So we, of course, are talking about the Sean Penn penned uh, article in Deadline about… What is this, an op-ed? Can we call it an op-ed? I guess so, but what pisses me off is that the reason I said Sean Penn penned is because I had to look six times because the title of the article is… Sean Penn says Bradley Cooper has a problem. Right. Which implies that this is a third-person article. Correct. But then, no, it's Sean Penn. It yeah. says, Sean Penn says Bradley Cooper has a problem, written by Sean Penn. <laughs> there are all kinds of problems up and down with this article, starting with the fact that he can't write. He thinks he can write. He can't write. He really thinks he can write. And I know that this is not the only example that we've had of him not being able to write. There was that book that was released. uh, Yeah. Something, something, honey, Bob. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's poor. And even if he could write in some situations, this is not his forum. So if you haven't had the pleasure. (laughs) I love your face. (laughs) It begins like this. Bradley Cooper has a problem. Sure, it all looks good on the outside. Family, fame, fortune. And with his first film as director, he's made the most successful contemporary love story of all time. That's exactly the problem Bradley Cooper has. Like, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like the voiceover in like a themed episode of Home Improvement. Mm-hmm. Like, Tim Taylor has a problem. Yeah. What is the problem that Tim Taylor has? Like, what are we doing here? Or like one of those super twee, I mean, they're all super twee, but and we like them, like when they're high quality, but Wes Anderson movies. You know what I mean? Like, it's a little bit… But that's done well. Like, yes, yes, of course. First of all, that's the only place where I think saying twee is a compliment. Yes. In a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. 100%. He would be delighted. But that's when it's done to excellent effect and it's taking you on a ride. But you can hear it, right? Like in the voice that you just did. Like, oh, of course. Bob meandered down to the road one day and yes. Yeah. This is not what Sean Penn was after. No. And he abandons said tone six seconds later, six words later. Um, it has been so long since we've been able to equate a success or a love story with high art or artists that we may well have forgotten how. Sorry, what? Yeah. Sorry, what? Well, I mean, the what comes, listen, as he said, he calls A Star is Born, quote, the most successful contemporary love story of all time. Contemporary and all time can't (laughs) exist in a sentence. (laughs) Contemporary is recent. All time is all time. 
I like, uh, yeah, but I bet that first of all, successful in these kinds of contexts usually means box office, right? Like he's not talking about people's response. He's talking about ticket sales. And I don't think you can say that because I'm sure there are 85 different versions that could correct him. But the one that comes to mind, of course, is Titanic. So he's getting around Titanic being arguably the most successful love story of all time because it's not contemporary. Like it's not modern day or something. Fuck him. Like honestly, if we're talking about the work that this person put into the writing of an article supposedly in service of supporting his friend, this is bullshit. Right. But it's bullshit writing. But we also have been focusing on that because you have to focus on that because it's hard to understand what the other side of it is, which is what the hell is the point here? This is a Sean Penn article, whatever, (laughs) polemic, in Deadline, which of course is a deep, deep um, inner Hollywood publication. Yeah, it's a trade. It's a trade. uh, But even Variety and The Hollywood Reporter have started doing sort of more You know, they do those long-reaching articles and tweet them that people read. They do things like the roundtables that are increasingly for a consumer audience. Deadline is literally where you go to read, so-and-so just got that job. I just left interviewing, auditioning for that job an hour ago. Like, it's very up to the minute. So I suppose it's supposed to be speaking to the people who can fix what's wrong with Bradley Cooper, which we'll get to. But... This is not the place for that. Well, if I'm going to make this gesture to help my friend, presumably this is like the most altruistic thing that Sean Penn has done, right? He's like, let me… I'm sorry. (laughs) Right? I'm sorry. This is the most altruistic thing that Sean Penn has done. Like, like, sorry, talking about the hard life of my friend, the movie star celebrity… Is is giving of himself? I I get. Uh, Listen, I'm being facetious. He has like a charity that helps Haiti. I know all that, but this is supposed to be altruism, professional and friendship and whatever altruism. He's like, let me leverage whatever I have because I am a tastemaker, and people regard me as however they regard me. I will lend all of that reputation to my friend Bradley, who has a problem. And let's get real here. This is not just an op-ed, though. There's a reason that it's not in the New York Times or whatever. This is supposedly to influence voters, we assume? Yes. Voting closes when? It opens, um, well, it opens, by the time people listen to this, it opens yesterday. It opens February 12th. So he penned this three days, what, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Four days before voting opens. So that you can read this article, you the Academy voter, and go, oh man, Mm -hmm. Bradley Cooper's problem is that he's just too good. Uh, He made a love story so good that people have forgotten how good it is. Or maybe his problem, because it's not clear what, remember that we started with Bradley Cooper has a problem. Right. It's not clear what the problem is here. Maybe the problem is Bradley Cooper is a star. and therefore he'll have other opportunities. Nothing here is clear except, hi, I'm Sean Penn. I'm a big deal in my own mind. Yeah. And so I'm swinging my dick on behalf of 
Bradley Cooper. Who, yeah. This, the, and the best, one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like, he goes on to say that he, where is this? Um, he says, one of my favorite films of all time, hearkening back to the essential filmmaking of Hal Ashby. So, according to Sean Penn, the purveyor of great taste, a star is born. Anyway, to my point, though. If you're going to be, like, he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart, then make it good. But he's trying. Like, I I did not intend to sit here and go through this with, like, a sixth grade teacher's pen. But he's trying. This is what he thinks he's doing. He says, in these silly-ass, soul-damaging times, a film like A Star is Born brings people together without saccharin, sugar, or salesmanship. First of all, pardon? Without saccharin or sugar or salesmanship? Yeah. I- really? And then, it is the achievement of one artist who had the courage to stand naked and jump from the edge of a vertical cliff, bringing his whole <laughs> cast and crew with him and simultaneously catch their fall. It's a triumph. Yeah. He thinks he is with those nonsensical, like, Bukowski high school stoner words. Mm -hmm. He thinks he is highlighting the beauty of whatever the fuck Bradley Cooper has done. Yes. So here's the thing. I know why this bothers me. I suspect it is a not dissimilar reason from why it bothers you. You said it bothers you because make it good. How could this have been good? is one question. It could have been edited. (laughs) (laughs) Just like his Rolling Stone piece on El Chapo should have been edited, just like his book should have not just been edited, but maybe like, you know, rewritten or, and I think this is the thing. This is the problem is that you get to Sean Penn's level and he's very good at some of the things he does, undeniably, is that then feedback or where you take feedback becomes very selective. Oh, absolutely. When he's writing like this, and clearly he's so far up his own ass, then who are the people he's listening to who are also up his ass? And so, yeah, it becomes a circle jerk. And in particular, if he is saying that this is one of the most important films of all time, <laughs> well, right? Uh, it, I, I'm not denying your, yeah. your boiling it down. Yeah. If he is saying that this is one of the most important films of all time, and one of the purposes of film is to tell stories that help us build and grow our empathy for people who may not have had the same experiences, how is this film stretching his empathy? I mean, I suppose that the most generous interpretation of your question is that Sean Penn identifies overmuch with Jackson Maine, right? I have Duh. struggled. Yes. I have, ha- I have dealt with the pain of loving my own hurt more than I loved a good woman. I and have so- sacrificed for art. The purity of art is the only thing. Fuck you. But what's damaging about that isn't just, like, it's very fun to be all fuck you um, and to, I will grammar edit this within an inch of its life. But what's damaging about this is what he is saying and what exactly that circle jerk is. 
This is, of course, all on the backdrop of the past few years of Oscars So White and of all the voters in question mm-hmm. uh, and all the people we talk about being, you know, really uniform, really monochrome in both the literal and uh, experiential sense, right? And so what bothers me most about this is that he says that, quote, there are many really good films and performances nominated this year. There are also many perishable trend pieces that win or lose will be lost to memory. So what he is just barely covering over here is you guys are so concerned with doing something new and with, say it with me, diversity or having women directors, oops, no, not women directors, um, or whatever, that you're missing the art here in favor of what he calls trend pieces, perishable trend pieces. Mm -hmm. That's how he sees movies like Black Black Panther, Panther. like uh, Into the Spider-Verse, which is nominated for Best Animated Feature, like The Favorite, which is a movie that is all about the inner lives of three women. This is how he sees those films, the best films of the year, as, oh, they're just like, they're just trendy. That's what Sean Penn thinks. That's what he's saying in favor of Bradley Cooper, who you have to assume knew some of this was going down. You know, I'm willing to be generous here. I'm willing to be generous and say that Bradley Cooper didn't know that Sean Penn was going to do this. I'm willing to accept that he's been present in conversations where Sean's like monologuing and being like perishable trend pieces and your film is so great and whatnot and this and that. I don't want to say that I believe that Bradley Cooper like agrees with him. I feel like the way I picture it, the scene unfolding in my mind is Sean's doing all the talking while he's chain smoking and Bradley just sits there and nods his head. Um, and then they say goodbye. And then Sean imbued with this passion goes home and like types out this masterpiece and fires it off to deadline. That's how I see this playing out because I can't, if I were running the campaign strategy for a star is born, Maybe we don't know Hollywood very well, but I can't see how I'd be happy with this going out. I can give you, like, I'll go ahead and co-sign your actual sort of uh, sequencing of events, like to give Bradley Cooper plausible deniability. But let's be honest, he's doing the pouty pants tour right now. He is doing the, like, there are all these stories in the press. Oh, he's a little bit disappointed. He's a bit surprised. He's a bit, we know those are not all just concerned friends running to the press. Um, This is the message that he is putting out. And, you know, we all know that, yeah, if you have your one friend who flies off the handle and writes at the (laughs) drop of a hat and you go over all sad pouty boy, that this might be something he would do even if I'm not saying he, you know, co-signed each word choice. I guess, yeah. I mean, we've listed the things that bother us about this and how it violates at least our obsession and need to find good examples of good work. And for me, I just go back to the takeaway here, which is a lot of us have to write reference letters or have been asked to write reference letters for other people. Yes? Sure. Like, and... Most of us take this very seriously. There have been times when I've spent a week on a reference letter for somebody. Certainly, I've spent several hours making sure it's right. 
The thing, though, the key to writing a reference letter for somebody or writing a reference for somebody or supporting or endorsing somebody is that it is about the other person. And this uh, article (laughs) is not about Bradley Cooper. It opens with Bradley Cooper has a problem, but this piece is about Sean Penn which violates the spirit of actually vouching for and endorsing somebody. Yeah, I agree with that. And to extend your metaphor, um, if you write a reference letter for somebody, I always want to make sure that I'm writing a very flattering reference letter that is also true because that's my reputation on the line also. I don't want to write something that I can't stand behind. Yep. And he has not defended anything in any actual way. Mm -hmm. Like your feelings about A Star is Born may be exactly in line with Sean Penn's if you two were having a scotch, or it may be totally different. But he's not showing his work. He's not backing it up with any actual examples. There's no actual description of anything that happens in the film here. Yeah. It's just talking about how a director jumps naked off a cliff. I'm... I'm going to talk about that one for a long time. Yeah. But there's nothing in here that is actually supporting his point that this is a humongous and monumental amount of work that Bradley Cooper has done. But also the word support there, as you said, is the key, right? What is this letter? If it's a letter of support, then why is it so angry? Once it becomes angry, it becomes a defense and it becomes, hey, you guys are being mean to my friend. And I'm writing a letter of defense of my friend. I don't think that he thinks or that he knows the difference. And if it is a letter of defense, Bradley is in trouble and has a problem. And the problem is you guys because you're overlooking his talent. Then fuck, let him defend himself first. You know what I mean? I do. And I agree with you that, again, that would have been the right way to do it. But your point is well taken. This is not actually about Bradley Cooper. No. This is, and the last line of this screed, which sounds like a bitchy breakup text, is where it becomes most clear. I'm raising a glass in advance to Bradley Cooper and a star is born. Surely a raised glass is as legitimate as a globe of gilded gold or a male statuette minus a penis, also gold gilded. God forbid it have balls this year. Exclamation point. He thinks that was a mic drop. This is yeah. where... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he does. He thinks that was a mic drop. He does. Like, he basically... You know what? He typed this out, and then what he did was he, like, did the chef's kiss. Yep. Right? At at the screen. Yep. Super, super loud yeah, yeah. typing. Like, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then chef kissed his words. That's right. Like, you know what I keep thinking about? And I know we're closing out here, but remember when Kanye West did this, right? Like the infamous, uh, I'm going to let you finish, right? Beyonce looks up at him and goes, oh, Kanye. Yeah. And thank God that camera was on her so that she could show how horrified she was. Yeah. Bradley Cooper is now deep in the hole because he doesn't have the equivalent of a camera on him going, oh, Sean. He needs to disavow this, and there's no situation in which he can. And so this is worse than it could have been three days ago. Well, Duanna, you, like, always amaze me with your brilliance and 
the latest is you comparing Sean Penn to Kanye West is a fucking stroke of genius. That's exactly what happened. I mean… Yeah. He just got up on stage and said, I'm going to let you finish Academy. mm Mm-hmm. But Bradley Cooper was the best of all time, which… Dude. No, the metaphor is beautiful. Like, if the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is Taylor Swift… And uh, Bradley Cooper is Beyonce, but not lesser because at least she had the wherewithal to be like, oh, Kanye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like horrified in the moment, which is as you should be. But yeah, this, that's the thing. This reads like an endorsement. And he now in the middle of of nine days in his pouty boy tour, nine days before the Oscars, has to find time to disavow Sean Penn. And I guess if you are going to endorse a friend, write a reference, it's not about your gold-gilded writing. God, no. No one cares about your writing flair. Let the people know why this person is the best candidate or the best suited or why your experience was pleasant. Be specific. Cite examples. And also what they can do going forward, right? That's this right. person has these skills, yes. not in my experience in all this time, blah, yes. blah, blah. And then out. Clean out. I mean, I don't want to say anything else now because that was such <laughs> a chef's kiss of an out. So well done you. Let's go to the next topic. Okay. So our next story is about, as you say, the shit I love, <laughs> which is actually how you sent me the pitch. You love this shit, exclamation point. That's exactly right. I saw the article and went, yeah, you're going to want to talk about this for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a disagreement or a negotiation between the Writers Guild Mm -hmm. and the agents for the writers. That's right. So, um, it's a, uh, you said a, a negotiation? Is that what you said? Sure. An impasse? Yeah, like... Basically, what happens in all of these sort of unions coming together is that there are agreements that are only ever agreed upon in the unions for the next two years, the next three years, the next whatever. So this is a conversation that is coming up because the Writers Guild and the Association of Talent Agents is coming up to a close. It's two months away from expiring. Mm-hmm. And so this conflict that is between them is ongoing. Right. So the main issue, like the main issue of contention mm-hmm. is? The main issue of contention is something called packaging. Yeah. Um, and collecting packaging fees. So basically it's, you know, in theory, if you write a script tomorrow then you send it to your agent at yep. UTA, and then that agent sends it all over town to see who wants to make it. And somebody buys it, and somebody makes it, and then they send it to all the actors all over town to see who wants to make it, and so forth. In reality, what happens much more often is that your script would be packaged by your own agency. So if you're at CAA, then it's only going to be sent to CAA clients that those clients uh, who are, say it's uh, Julia Roberts, for example, wants to be in your film and she's also going to be an executive producer and gets read on films to do it and the whole thing. 
those the agent is then collecting a fee from his own client, the writer, and uh, Julia Roberts, the star or executive producer or whatever, but the argument here is because Julia Roberts can swing it. He's collecting a fee for, congratulations, I, I packaged this for you, when in fact you didn't really package it so much as you put it on the boardroom table. And if you're giving it to your own client, you are then collecting those fees back. I feel like that was not as clear as it could have been. Well, let's make it super simple. You're a writer. Yep. You come up with a great idea for a movie. Mm-hmm. You uh, give it to your agent. Your mm-hmm. agent packages it. Julia Roberts like Julia Roberts is like, yeah, I definitely want to do this movie. So then Universal says, yeah, great. This is a great script and Julia Roberts attached. Okay, great. We're going to give it $100. Right. So of the $100, let's say the writer or Julia gets lots of it. So yep. let's say Julia gets $70. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And then the writer gets 30. Right. Now the writer has to siphon off how much for their agent fee? 10%. Always be 10%. That's right. So that's $3 in that scenario. Okay. Plus the package fee. That's right. Right. And ostensibly the agent is collecting that packaging fee from all of the people in that scenario. Yeah. So they're double dipping essentially. Right. They're making – and also because if you're packaging – that fee that you just talked about, you're like, okay, so let's say the writer gets 30. Well, if I'm the agent and I'm doing the packaging mm-hmm. and I can go, well, let's see, if I put this with Julia Roberts, then blah, 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 then maybe we get more money. So the budget, so her commission that I get from her is going to be that much more. Right. So yeah, why not screw the writer? Right. Why not take a lesser price for the sale of that script? Okay. Because I'm going to win either way as the agent, right? Yeah. And that writer is still paying. So in your scenario, now we negotiate the writer down to, say, $20. Yeah. Right? And yeah, sure, Julia can have 80 Why not? Um, I'm going to make $2 from the writer, mm-hmm. plus I'm making more money from the packaging from Julia. And that writer is still paying that packaging fee, which in our scenario, let's say, is a dollar. Yeah. So I'm making less money. I'm making 20 instead of 30 but I'm still paying my agent $3. Right. And it's it's double dipping essentially is the is the biggest issue. Okay, so the way we've broken it down, we are favoring the writer side. Give me the agent's argument because this is an impasse, yes? So, what are they how are they arguing their case? Right. Well, the agent side of the equation is more and more uh, that this is the way things are done. So, That agency that I said, I said CAA, um, there used to be many agencies of which CAA and William Morris and, you know, and Endeavor and so forth. And I'm hesitating a little bit because other than CAA uh, and UTA, the agencies keep eating up smaller agencies, right? So this packaging is now much more of a matter of course. It used to be that, let's say for the sake of argument, there were three big agencies and five on the next tier, and 10 on the tier under that. But now, more and more and more, those agencies represent almost everybody of note. Yeah. So the it's like a- grocery stores. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So that agent's argument is, well, I have everybody that you want right here, and I can get your package made in a way that you, we unconnected writer can't. And 
if you were basically it's like a it's it's like a transactional fee. It's like in the banks when they charge you for a fee and you're like, what is this for? And they're like, oh, that's like your operational fee. And you're like, so you're just charging me for having a bank account. Is that correct? Essentially, they're charging you for being a client. Um, the other issue in contention is not dissimilar. The Writers Guild also wants agents not to collect money when a writer gets scale. Mm-hmm. So what that means is the same guild agreements, all these unions say, okay, so if you write a half hour of television, then the going rate is, let's call it $35. And so it's $35. We all know this, right? I know this, you know this, everybody knows this. So my agent could negotiate for more. He could negotiate for $40 for me. But if he doesn't, if they say, oh, well, she's young, she's new, she only gets $35. Right. He's still collecting a commission, but he didn't do any work. Right. He received the phone call yeah. that said, hey. I need a writer for scale. We're going to pay her 35 Well, not even. Like, yeah. he sends over all the people, mm-hmm. and they say, hey, we want this one. We're going to pick your writer. And he says, okay, great. Thank you. I'll send over the contract. And he's going to collect a commission right. on that. And he didn't negotiate for more for more money, for more anything. Right. So basically the argument here is that these agents aren't showing their value. And the agent's argument, as you say, is, yeah, we have all the access to all the people that you don't have. So that is our value. Our value is in existing, essentially. So it's a membership fee. It is essentially like a membership fee. That's right. right. And so the Writers Guild wants them to stop charging yeah. a membership fee, a, a usage fee or yeah. a plan fee or whatever your bank calls it. Um, and that's where we are. And two months, I should say that when we were in LA last year for the Oscars, uh, I had friends who were at meetings and in discussions about this issue then. This has been ongoing and ongoing. So they are down to the wire in terms of figuring this out. Tell me the internal support among the membership of the guild. Everybody's all in? I mean, yeah, like, uh, the thing is, this is one of those issues that affects you more the lower on the totem pole you are. Always. Right? So it's kind of like an issue we talked about a few months back where, like, this is not going to affect the biggest producers or writers or stars on Netflix, for example, but it affects the lower, lower bottom line. So generally speaking... Everybody is in support of this, but the biggest name writers inside the guild, for example, haven't been worried about paying scale, being paid scale, which scale means the lowest you can make, yeah. and it goes up from there. They haven't been worried about being paid scale for a long time. So how close are we to getting to, like, a last, time, last time the strike was between the guild and, like, the studios. That's right. And it was loosely about getting royalties for streaming, uh, universal rights for, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So that was 12 years ago? That was 2008. Yeah. So 11 years ago? Yeah. And that was a big, hairy, dramatic deal. Yes. Like shows dropped in their tracks. Right. Movies were put off for months. A lot of people didn't work. Like it was Mm -hmm. a hard time. So this time... How close are we to a strike? That is a really good question. The business still operates on the network television schedule, even though the network television schedule is only a part of the pie now, Yeah, which is to say that 
at this period in time, pilots are being made. People are figuring out what the shows could be for the upcoming season, which means a whole bunch of deals are maybe going to be done. Everybody's kind of poised to make the deals when those shows get picked up, i.e. employ hundreds and hundreds of writers. It's a really dangerous time for there to be a strike. Right. Uh, like for the strike to be happening before, say, April and May is when all those deals are done. Right. And so I would wager that, look, agents love money. That's yeah. what it comes down to. So there's money on the table. We know that in April and May, there are going to be studios ready to spend money. So that's a motivation to to fix it up. That said, everybody that we're talking about or that we've ever talked about on this show would be affected by these unions one way or the other. So it's not like you can undercut anybody or do your right. deal yourself or anything like that. Everybody is what's called signatory to the other, which means they all agree to play in the same sandbox. So the other way of looking at that is holding pilot season over everybody's head could be a way to show everybody they're serious. So given that we've just gone like we've drilled down into the issue. Let's go back up and talk about whether or not this issue is a reflection of a continued lack of value placed on writing in the business. I mean... Well, the reason I say this is because, you know, to keep the thread going about the Oscars, every year when the writing categories come up at the Oscars, and there are two of them, the presenters are always up there essentially arguing the value of the writer. It's always a speech like this, like, you know, and, and they'll like show a graphic of pages fluttering around. That's right. right? Yeah. <laughs> and one or two of them, if it's a double presenter situation, will read from the script. You've heard this. You see this. Like, I, this I, is... <laughs> it's what I pay the most attention to every time. That's right. And Sometimes then, they have the lines actually physically exactly, go by exactly. while they're saying them. Like in Shakespearean calligraphy or whatever, right? Uh, some, or the, or a typewriter. Yeah the, yeah. the font is courier and you, yes. and you see it up there and Correct. it says, you know, whatever. And then the like final conclusion will be without the words or without the script, the, the story doesn't happen and nothing can happen the end. And You're exactly right. Like it, that, <laughs> I'm having a bit of PTSD because that's exactly right. the condescending tone that yeah. happens every year. And the thing is, is that the fact that it has to happen every year, like, you know, nobody's getting up to present the acting categories being like, without the actors, there would be no characters. Well, duh. Like, okay, I get it. Nobody needs that explained to them. But like every year they feel the need or they perceive a need or it, there is a need to get up there and be like, hey, this is why we give away two awards for writing. Yeah, sorry for interrupting your time. No, you're absolutely right. Like, they present the reason. They're like, they're justifying the existence of these two awards. And these awards have been around, it'll be the 91st Oscars in, what, 10 days or whatever. And they do it, like, over and over again. They've done it 91 times. I mean, this is the big secret about writing. And this is true of all writing, not just television and film, but it's most notable in television and film. The big secret is everybody thinks they can do it. Have you ever seen a script in real life, like a physical script? Sure you have. Yeah. It doesn't look that impressive. I, I've made my life's work in scripts. I love them. And still, it's 100 pages 
of like photocopy paper. It is plain with, you know, with words on a page with courier 12 point font and fastened with a brass brad, uh, which is like the fastener that you use top and bottom only. Don't put your brad in the middle like a, like a newbie. (laughs) They don't look like much. And so I think people would like to believe that they're not that important. When we have exploding cars, or even if you are, say, oh, visual effects, you can see how visual effects have a ramification. People love, you know those split screens where you're watching Avengers or whatever, and you see people in a ping pong ball suit, and then on the screen, Thanos explodes or something. Don't yell at me. I haven't seen Infinity War. Um, Infinity War? Civil War. I don't know. You get the idea. Yes. But writing looks like some words on a page. Okay, mm-hmm. well, we got this thing. Now now yeah. we can go. When, yeah, in fact, it is. Well, it is the blueprint. It's a blueprint and it's imagination on a page. Um, and not for nothing, it's fucking hard. It's really hard. Uh, and it's different in this business because, look, to make it personal for a second, here was what was most interesting when I wrote a book and you wrote a book. And so I don't know if you felt similarly, but when you write a book and you're talking about like the words and what they should be and the design of the cover and whatnot, there's nowhere else it's going to go. You, the book writer, you are the product, like you've made the thing. And so everybody wants to know what you think. Yeah. And so writers in in books have a little more respect because yeah. making the printed thing is the thing. There it's not going to some other place. Yeah. But the point of a script written for television or film is that everybody else is gonna take it and in their minds go make it better. Mm-hmm. Now let's make it real. Let's yeah. put a pretty girl in it. Let's explode some cars. Yeah. So it's seen as just, yeah, step one. You got to have wheels so that you can yeah. have an awesome car. As just. I mean, the key word there is just step one. That's right. So where do we go from here? Ultimately, this is a situation where the agents and by extension, the studios mm-hmm. need the writers and those ideas and the written word more, one would say, than the writers need those agents. Obviously, as I say, everybody's kind of hamstrung because they're locked together, but they need those ideas. They have to come in. And, you know, before you say, oh, but like so many actors or whatnot are are writers now and whatnot, but they are still... Uh, Sean Penn. (laughs) (laughs) Sean Penn, first of all. Stop that thought, period. And second (laughs) of all... um, they're still bound by all these unions if they've done any writing up to this time. What it could lead to, I guess, is the rise of, you know, I think it was two writer strikes ago uh, in 1999 or slightly earlier. Um, there was such a, there was a writer strike over issues that I don't remember now that basically led to the rise of reality TV. Yeah. There were holes in programming that led to Survivor and all of the others and sort of that generation of television. And so and so what we could see, I think, is a rise of non-union. All these things that we're talking about are unions. And as I say, they all have to use each other. But it could be a time for something like, say, YouTube, 
and all of the programming that's made there to swing into gear because it doesn't always have to be union or other kind of low grade. Like if I was Snapchat or somebody, I'd be salivating right now because if I can provide programming and sweep up all those eyeballs while everybody else is arguing, this could be a real opportunity. So we may be looking at the next wave of whatever reality television unscripted or whatnot is going to look like. Instagram influencers. Yeah. Well, or scripted, but found, but non-union writers. So writers who are not in the union would not be bound by these contracts. Um, And studios who are not obligated to use union writers wouldn't have to use them. Is that scary though? Look, of course it's scary because unions, whether you believe in them or not, and I know a lot of people have a lot of feelings about unions, they're made specifically to avoid situations like that. They're made specifically to avoid writers whose work is just step one being exploited or actors or anybody. They're made to say this is a real job and a real position and should be paid accordingly. So yeah, end arounds are are scary. That said, the people in the unions are there for a reason because they've worked really hard for a long time to be really good. So uh, if we're talking about reality TV as the comparison, a lot of people thought and think that unscripted TV is really poor. Like it's not high quality or at least not high quality storytelling. Uh, I don't want to go that far. I think there's been incredible storytelling and non-scripted, but I think there's, there's going to be a, a want for this to come back in some way. I guess what I'm saying is there may be another art form that springs up in the meantime that is a, a new thing that we all contend with. Yeah. Instagram influencers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And that's already happening for sure. Yeah. There's Instagram stories and TV and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But the key is people haven't really figured out how to bring that to the mass masses yeah. and market it, but necessity is the mother of invention. So if there is a strike or something, you watch. Somebody will figure out how to do that real fast. Get it together, agents. I appreciate that there is a debate on both sides, but uh, but yeah, it's getting close. Yeah, I mean, like by the end of this season, we may know whether or not we're in a strike situation or they've been able to reach a deal, right? By the end of our season. Oh, by the end of this season of Show Your Work. Yeah. Yes, we will know for sure what has happened. And the question will be if there is a strike, And I know a lot of people really want to avoid that because, as I said, 2008 was hard on people. And if there is a strike, exactly how long it's going to continue. Well, if there is a strike, like how it affects you, everybody out there, is that new thing you discover every two weeks on Netflix, probably not going to be the same. Uh, Yeah, or they'll start pulling things out of the archives that they've been hanging on to. Uh, Netflix has deep, deep coffers. Uh, So you may find yourself watching, I don't know, some sort of beaver documentary from Finland because (laughs) I wouldn't worry about Netflix vaults running out anytime soon. But yeah, they may change our viewing taste forever. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And speaking of what we're watching on Netflix, you and I, well, you finished. I'm halfway through. Sarah's written about it. She'll do a more extensive, proper review in a few days. But Russian Doll. A yep. lot of people are saying it's like the best new show on television, which is something people say every month now uh, <laughs> because new shows come out so often. But this one is pretty fucking special. Yeah, I actually, I saw a headline that said, oh, it's the best show of 2019. And I'm like, guys, you're actually cheapening it by saying that because it's, you know, because you're a month into 2019, but it is a really good show. So if you haven't watched, um, I saw a Vox review, which I really liked, that said, we basically can't tell you anything about Russian Doll except that Natasha Lyonne is in it. Uh, I think we here can go a little further than that. Uh, Russian Doll is one of those stories that over eight episodes, which are each about a half hour long, basically focuses on one party and the things that happen in the party that spiral outward and affect people in the world, right? Is that fair? Yeah. The okay. people we care about in this world. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a like, like a, it's not black mirror. Like it's I mean, I what I'm trying to say is it's not black mirror in the sense of black mirror is more like, yeah, it affects people in the world. This is very this is very contained. Oh yeah, it's about a small group of characters yes. that you come to know. It's not, uh, no, it's not an anthology. Yeah. It's not new characters all the time. Um, Natasha Leone is the lead and the star. Uh, and it's all about her and things that happen in her life as a result. Yeah. So you've watched four. Yep. And tell me about how you watch them. So you're like, oh yeah, Russian Doll, I heard about this. I'm going to watch it. Yep. And so you watched an episode. So I watched an episode and I mean, I never like the first episode of anything. Mm -hmm. It's or very rarely. Mm -hmm. So I didn't love the first, let's call it 20 minutes Uh of the first episode. Which I believe is 25 minutes long. And then by the end of it, I was like, okay, I'm curious. I fired up the second one right away. Right away. And then. And were you watching by yourself or Yasik was here too? By myself. Okay. And then I had to take a break for whatever reason, but I kept thinking about it. And then I watched like three and four a couple of hours later. Mm-hmm. And now, like, and then the weekend ended. <laughs> right. And so I can't watch it for like, maybe before I go to bed tonight, I'll like, yeah, I'll, I'll do an episode. It's 25 minutes. It's very manageable. The thing is too, though, is the way I consume entertainment. Like, I'm not a true binger in that sense. Like, it drives me crazy that you're not a binger. Yeah. It and really you know hurts. this about me. Yes. You know this. There are some things I binge that are very light, like elite I binged. Right. Um, but And most, just for the clarification yeah. for us, how many episodes is elite? I haven't watched yet. Oh, eight? Eight. Yeah. Eight hours. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So this is actually half that volume. Yes. Mm-hmm. But 
for this one, like for shows like this, and yes, I am slowly making my way through The Americans. I like it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but with a show like The Americans and even Russian Doll, I like to take my time. I like to let it like go through me. And I like to sit with it. Right. And I do understand that, um, although I think we were talking about new entertainment forms and whatnot, I think somewhere somebody who's working in the Netflix algorithm is trying to figure out what it is going to take to get you to binge because they love that, right? They love it all. Um, They want people to gobble it up so that everybody can write about it and talk about it two weeks later and everybody has seen it. That's right. Um, For my part, when I had the plague, as I mentioned last week, uh, my sweet husband said, oh, poor honey. And at the end of one day where I was barely conscious said, have you watched the entirety of Netflix yet? And I was like, wait, I should. Um, And when I became a little more conscious, I was like, oh yeah, I should try this out. It's only a half hour, try it out. And because I had the time, because I had the unfettered grossness that was happening to me and couldn't do anything other than try and mitigate it, uh, I binged almost all at once. But you're right, you're thinking about it all the time. Yeah. So... Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. I'm interested in that. How come? I wasn't surprised because, and I think this is where we're centering our discussion, Natasha Leon, as we've all known, if you've followed her career, always had it. Like, not just, um, like, not just funny in American Pie, but, like, there were people who were like, this one is special. And, of course you know, through it all, she had her stumbles. And so I didn't think that this person on the comeback would make things that were insignificant. It just never, like, either it's an aura or an it or whatever. I just find her, or I just found her from the very beginning, like that type of Hollywood actor. Well, she's compelling for sure and talented, absolutely. And I mean, even the fact that you referenced, uh, what did you say? American Pie? Yeah. I mean, that's hilarious to me because my uh, my sort of initial memory of Natasha Leone is everyone says I love you, like Woody Allen, the polar opposite. And we should be clear that like personal struggles aside, she's been on Orange is the New Black for the last seven seasons. She's been working. Yeah. It's not necessarily super visual if you don't watch that show because it's... It's been happening, but she's there. Right, but it's not shit. Like, No, not by any means. And she's been a really strong character on that show for all seven seasons. But Natasha Leone is not just the star here. She created this show with Leslie Headland, who we'll come back to in a minute, and Amy Poehler. This is a creation of hers. She is the director of one of the episodes. There are three directors who share all of the, I should say there are two directors who share all of the episodes except one, uh, and she directs that final episode. Um, So this is a creation of hers, and I think that's where maybe surprise comes, if there is any, because the reason people are talking so much about this is it's fully formed. Oh, yeah. It's got a full narrative. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but it's got a real confidence in where it's going. And Natasha Leone, who's a real particular type of 
brand of performer. It's perfectly crafted for her without being, you know, too indulgent, without being, let's go three for three, without being Sean Penn. Yeah. It's not spending too much time just, oh, let's show everything she can do. It's really confident. So I'm I'm delighted by that. And uh, I said Leslie Headland, who has written Sleeping with Other People and also Terriers and uh, is sort of a known inside Hollywood kind of comedic person, uh, but maybe is not such a such a one-line name just yet. But I think wait for it. So now what? If you are, let's say you are, you're, you're like, oh yeah, you guys, you thought I was just some actress. You thought I was just the gravelly voiced one on Orange is the New Black. Watch me. Boom. Now what? Do you think that this will change people's perception of what a creator looks like or what Natasha Leone can do or any of the above? I do. And for all the shitty things that she's been through, and it was some shit. I mean, I remember there were terrible stories about her in like the 2000s in sightings on Gawker, like when all of us were reading Gawker and people were sending in like, um, and that was like one of the things that Gawker was known for is like New York sightings of famous or semi-famous people. And it was really, really, really sad stories, right? And she got help. She disappeared. She came back. She's worked steadily. She's done Russian Doll. I think that though for all that, I guess the, for lack of a better word, the reward for enduring it and getting through it and hopefully beating it is that this is a really good time for someone like Natasha Leon. It's a really good time, like not to be mercenary about it, but it's a good time for women who don't have to be perfect. Mm, I like that way of looking at it. And again, without spoiling anything, the character has clearly had some of the same struggles that the actress has. It feels authentic in that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's been through some trauma. We, you know, we are trying to figure out what exactly it is. That is uh, the character. Yeah. And also, but in these times, like I'm speaking right now in general, there wasn't There wasn't a lot of generosity towards flawed women, traumatized women, women in pain 15 years ago. Well, that's really interesting because I would agree and yet say the opposite. I thought you were going to say there wasn't a lot of sympathy towards people, but specifically women who stumbled. If you made a mistake, you were out right? Like you talked about being imperfect. And what I love about what you're saying is that her imperfections, her stumbles, her problems have informed what is essentially a bit of a, a bit of a, like a half court shot. Like this is a, a real win. And- But there's opportunity for it too. There is opportunity for it. Absolutely. Let's say for the sake of argument and take out the the times when, you know, that people are looking for things like this now. Um, If you're on a Netflix series for seven seasons, you can walk in and get a meeting or whatnot. Had she not had those stumbles, 
this would not be that good. It would have been forgotten. It would not be coming up first on everybody's Netflix algorithm. But that's part of, I think, what I'm saying is that, like, there was a time that she wouldn't have been able to be hired on a show like Orange is the New Black and work for seven seasons because back in the day, how many women were show running and how many women were show running stories like Orange is the New Black. Like, it all goes to show you, I guess, in a really uplifting, encouraging way that those building blocks of change reveal their impact over time and slowly. Well, I love that you said that because the showrunner of Orange is the New Black is Genji Cohen, who is public about all the shows she was fired from, Mm -hmm. that she tried to work on network television. Uh, Her brother is David Cohen, who was one of the creators of Will and Grace, like the polar opposite. Yeah. And she kept getting fired off all these shows and not like playing well with others or whatnot. And then she went and made Weeds which is another show about a difficult woman that probably was ahead of its time. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it's… The first two seasons are perfect. Yeah, I would go as far as the first three. But yeah, Yeah. really enjoyable. And then it goes a bit, uh, you know, but so have many, many a show. But those, that woman is the woman who says, okay, I want this kind of, you know, odd duck to come here and be on my show. You know, and… To give historical examples of this, let's talk about someone like Sean Young, who was considered difficult Mm -hmm. and demanding and essentially got blackballed. Mm -hmm. Very promising, very promising in her prime. And wasn't able to like have people like Genji who were around, who were making decisions, who had like the power… To and the capital to spend on being like, hey, let me give this person a chance. On the flip side, a very close equivalent you could say to someone like Natasha Leon is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. At the beginning of his career, just like hers, immense talent. Like people were like, wow, this is the person. I remember reading articles about Natasha Leon. I think the movie was uh, Slums of Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And people were like, holy shit, what she can do in this film. And so they used to talk about Robert Downey Jr. the same way, right? And then we all know he had his stumbles and he kept on having people give him a chance. Men, right? Who could Sean Penn him. That's right. Oh, I see myself. Oh my God, we are threading Sean Penn through this whole podcast. So He would be thrilled. <laughs> I can Sean Penn this guy because I can relate to him. Of course I'm going to give him a chance. Mel Gibson gives him a chance, right? He ends up on Ali McBeal. Oh, that's right. Right? Like David E. Kelly gives him a chance. Until, like, he runs out of chances, but then he still keeps on getting chances, and then he gets the ultimate chance in Jon Favreau convincing Marvel, this is your guy. This is Tony Stark, and, I mean, the rest is history. If you kind of look at the same trajectory, it's it's not as explosive yet for Natasha Leon, but she's coming around, or she came around after she, like, sorted her personal life out at a time when someone like Genji Cohen was in a power position and casting and able to see like, yeah, I see that talent and I'm going to take a risk. Just like David e. Kelly and Mel Gibson all took a risk on Robert Downey Jr. I find that very, in a shitty business and in shitty times, I find that quite motivating. Well, that's a really 
That's a really great way to look at it. And it's also a really great reminder that if you have somebody in your life who is struggling, who is mired in the worst parts of demons that they have, that the other side for them, which is is possible, which I know is not always the case, but which is absolutely, uh, you know, people work hard and struggle to maintain themselves in whatever recovery means for them, but that it is possible, but that it's not always going to be the only story in their lives, that it's going to be at some point can be a footnote, can be, uh, oh, and also this, but it's no longer the headline in their lives, whether or not they have anything to do with an industry like this or even in their private lives. I really like that in in that way. And certainly, I mean, obviously, given that she created this show, she's acting in it, she directed the final episode – Obviously, she's showing her work, right? Like she's accumulating the seven years that she was on Orange is the New Black and working on what was then probably a side hustle, like writing the story, figuring it out, getting to a place where she's like, okay, I'm ready to pitch. Being able to like befriend um, and work with someone like Amy Poehler, like all of that is connected. Like there is something to these building blocks that have been over the last, well, forever, but gaining momentum over the last 10, 15 years that were in place for Natasha Leon to strike at the right time. That's great. It really is great. And it highlights one more thing that I really love about the show. Um, The show is unabashedly a New York show in a much different way than, say, uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's really, it's, it's almost Seinfeldian in that it feels like a really small neighborhood and a really small group of people. But what I love about it in particular is that it is effortlessly, effortlessly diverse. It is effortlessly uh, making three-dimensional characters out of people that we don't always see on television without feeling like it's any sort of concession or anything that has anything other than, like, the story was made to be this way. And I think that, too, is one of those things that, as you say, it's the right time for. Yeah. And she's the right person to to make that happen, to yeah. tell that story. You're right. And you talk about sort of the grandmothers of all this, Weeds, a show above, or Weeds, a show before its time. Um, but it is, like hitting on a common thing that you and I talk about a lot, which is completing or at least making complete characters out of women. And sometimes that is being unlikable. Her character is hard to like, like most of the time. Oh, Um, that's really interesting because I fell in love with her immediately. I fell in love with her too, but it's like a different thing to say love and like. You know, she's purposefully abrasive. Without spoiling anything, this is intentional. Sarah put it this way. She's a walking callus. Yeah. So she's abrasive because outside she's had no choice but to develop a skin or at least to be sandpaper on the outside. Like she she pushes more than she draws you in. Um, but the thing is, is that, and so, yeah, when I say unlikable, I mean that we're all unlikable at 
times. Of course. Constantly, often, whatever. And so, yeah, I love her for that, but it doesn't mean that I have to watch her and not, like, not be frustrated and not be like, oh my God, sometimes I feel like you are a caricature of yourself and yet it feels so authentic for you in this moment to be a caricature. Does that make sense? Layers. What it sounds like to me, you know, I was thinking about, uh, I was talking with somebody about how I never dreamed of my wedding when I was growing up. Stay with me. I was never the kind of person who was like, oh, I'm going to get married and do this and do that. When I dreamed like that, I was dreaming of becoming a New Yorker. Um, So I may have been predisposed to have affection for that kind of a character. But I think the reason that you felt like you were instantly buying in anyway is because of the confidence in the storytelling. And this comes back to what you're talking about, about her talent as an actor, that even though that character is a walking callus, you feel confident that it's going somewhere and we're shown often enough that that character is called Nadia, which we could have said 15 minutes ago, but you feel confident that Nadia's on a journey and you're being taken somewhere. You don't feel like, is this going anywhere? It's not, hate to say it, Lorelai Gilmore, who maybe got away with being a brat in a different way. It's, it's very clear that they're doing that for a reason. No, I do think, I trust that they're doing that for a reason. I trust that when she like walks into a room and hunches over and instead of behaving like a 36-year-old, she actually like has the verbal cadence of a 60-year-old Jewish woman, which drives me crazy. Like I have to say, like when she walks in and she's like, well, I got it. You know what I mean? Like that, that kind of, um, I don't know. It's hard to, I, I find it's hard for me to like articulate, but... She has a way of speaking that is, like, so beyond her years. Which I think she's always had. Like, I yes. think, and I should be clear that as we're talking, you know, it's not that she hasn't, she's been doing a huge number of films, often really small films that didn't get massive release. So it's not that she was, you know, not working for 10 years. Right. But um, small things. But I think that's always been who she was, right? Well, and that's just it. You know why you buy it again, coming back to that caricature, you buy it because, or at least the way I buy it is because this was a child star who struggled as a child star. Like she has said before, I mean, listen, I've done in the past, like in the early 2000s, Natasha Leon was someone we read about and she had said with not a small amount of regret about her parents, who would do this to like a six-year-old? I mean, this is a whole other topic. I understand. Yeah, for sure. And we're not going to go there. But what she's done to this character, maybe in the very few times we've seen in entertainment, is she's taken that, internalized it, and shown us what that looks like. This is what happens when a six-year-old girl starts making sh- like so much money. And this is, this is what happens when she's 36, she acts like she's 60. When she's 10, she acts like she's 20. It's a really layered performance that is like blurring the lines of real and not, which makes it so compelling. That's right. It's blurring the lines between Natasha and Nadia. That's right. But that's exactly what it is. And you have to remember where she came from and the work that she's done on herself, both personally and professionally, to really tease that performance out of herself. 
And yet, I guess part of the reason that it's doing so well is because I would wager there are a whole lot of people who don't know that at all. There are a whole lot of people who may not have known her at all beyond, oh yeah, that girl from that thing. Um, and enjoy and live in that character at the same time. So tell us what you think. Um, if you were a fan of her, if you weren't, if you still love But I'm a Cheerleader, which arguably is my favorite Natasha Lyonne uh, movie before now, um, and how you feel about Russian Doll. Uh, we want to know your reaction, because I do think it's having ripples way beyond the Netflix consumer vultures or people who are sick. Um, and I'm excited for what it means for her next. So here's an interesting trio of names. Anne Hathaway, Drake, and Rupert Everett. And one more, Brooke. Brooke is the person who first saw the Anne Hathaway interview that started this whole thread and tweeted at us, and I am delighted and angry with her because it's all I've been able to think about. Yeah. And somehow Drake found his way into this story. He wormed his way in at the last minute. And so did Rupert Everett via Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> and, and so did Rupert Everett via Entertainment Weekly and the 22-year-old random anniversary of my best friend's wedding. But let's start, let's start with Annie. Yeah. So uh, she is on the cover of People magazine, or was last week's issue, and did a sit-down interview with uh, Jess Cagle. People.tv. Yep. That's right. And in the print issue, she, she, you know, I covered it on the site. She really was candid about like half the hate and what she's learned. And then in the interview, she like spills the tea when Jess asks her about her Oscars hosting experience. Right. And what's so interesting is that you said, oh, you covered it on the site and you did a great job and everything. But I feel like we've been talking about half a hate and her reaction to it and dealing with people and what that has been every interview for the last 10 years. Yeah. Right? Like it's still been the ongoing thing and I need to learn and I need to take myself less seriously or whatever. And I guess I, if that is work, then through the last 10 years or however long it's been since I guess Les Miserables or the Oscar hosting gig, she's found the solution. Well, I would argue that she just found it today because it feels like I recently somebody on the weekend said, well, am I going to have to go on an endless apology tour about something she'd done in her life? And I have felt like Anne has been on kind of an endless apology tour. Yeah. And then she changed the game in this Jess Cagle interview. Yeah. She says, can I just spill some tea about the Oscars? Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, yes. You can see him salivate. You can yep. see him going, excuse me? She's never said such a thing in her life. Yep. And said what everybody knows now. She turned down the hosting gig for the Oscars until James Franco convinced her to do it. Yeah. And proceeded to tap out on her. I am so mad, Brooke, <laughs> because if I didn't know this, then I wouldn't know this. I wouldn't be so mad. But you had a great, great take on this. You said it's about instincts and trusting your instincts. Yeah. So she says, she said no. She didn't want to do it. She didn't feel right about it. And he comes along in his 
fucking James Franco way. And he's like, come on, we got to do it. We got to do it. And she got talked into it. And what that tells me is that he was already doing it, that she already turned down the idea of hosting with James Franco. Because the story wasn't, I turned it down, and then they said, well, what if you did it with James, and then it changed everything. That's not the story. Yeah. Like, they were like, hey, would you like to host with James Franco? And she was like, no, thank you. And he said, come on, come on, it'll be fun, we'll be great. Yeah. And then, as we know, he hung her out to dry. And this is where there's so many different angles, like, for us to approach this. We've been through this story over and over again. Yes, he hung her out to dry. But here are the new angles. The new angles are that because Anne Hathaway is who she is, some would say a tryhard, we've called her very earnest, and, like, the trying is the thing that we've liked about her, that she's not afraid to look like she's trying. Um, Because of that tryhard, earnest quality, it was always perceived that she was the one who wanted to do it more. And that is our social assumption. That is our, that is our default, right? The person who tries harder is the one who wants it more. And now we have the truth. It is the one who was lackadaisical, the cool, the stoner, the guy who disappeared for fucking half the show and acted like he didn't care anymore. Initially, the origin was that he wanted to do it more. Right. And that he needed her to lend him credibility. Because the other side of that is if he's begging her to do it, they're telling him, no, you can't host the Oscars without her. You need her to legitimize you. But that also he needed her and used her to be the fall guy. That's right. When this goes bad, well, she's Annie. Everybody likes her. She wants to make everyone like her. Mm -hmm. So they're going to blame her and I'm going to be able to skulk away into the bushes and she can eat it. Well, we're back again to women making mistakes and having to pay for them for so mm-hmm. long that she paid for that mistake for a decade at yeah. least. A, not even a mistake, but a mishap. Yeah. Uh, and he got off scot-free. And I think that if – and I think that knowing what we now know, that she didn't want to do it in the first place, explains why she had such a problem figuring out the work of apologizing for it or atoning for it or, or getting past, past it, right? Right. Because when you, when you willingly step into something that fails, you at least know that at the beginning you really believed in it. And it's the way she's handling this latest movie, Serenity. The critics haven't liked it. The people who like are generous towards it are like, this is the craziest movie of the year. Like just see it because it's so fucked up. And so she's aware of this criticism, but she's like, hey, some people are going to like it. Some people aren't. I believe in it. I think it's something special. And yeah, you move on, which is the way that you do things or the way you handle things when you step into it without doubt. Right. And what you're pointing out there is goes not only to the reaction that people are having to the movie, but also I imagine what the way she chose things in the first place, right? Yeah. Like now she sits in front of every script, in front of every hundred pages of paper and goes, can I live or die with this? Like, am I fine with this if this tanks or is terrible or is amazing? And if the answer is yes, then yeah, you say yes, right? Yeah. I think, yeah, you might be right that on a larger level, she said yes to a lot of things for a lot of 
reasons back in the day. And then maybe some of that like earnestness that made people crazy or tryhardness was trying to make it look good even if it kind of wasn't the thing. Yeah. Well, she doesn't know any other way. Or didn't. No. And now, literally, there are no fucks to give, right? I, great, we got through it. Um, there is no ho- There is no host for the Oscars this year. So listen, how uh, looking back on my situation, not that bad anymore. At all. And also, like, fuck all y'all. And let me tell you this story. T, James wanted to do it, and he talked me into it. So if you're going to criticize it, blame him. Mm-hmm. Wash my hands of it. Right. Yeah. Which, and but, I, he can't dispute it. No, but also in four sentences, she cleaned up what she spent 10 years kind of atoning for. And you are always the one who's so good at saying, here's the takeaway, here's the like real world application. And my God, is this one the big one for me? If there is something that is a blemish, if it goes wrong, if it whatever, stop atoning, stop like do what you need to do, say your things, send your emails, do your apologies, and then be like, Bye. Because it's so much more powerful to be like, you know what? Yeah. Like, I wasn't that excited about it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Is so much more powerful than, eh, mm, it didn't go well, uh, uh, covering over the way you felt. Yeah. That's not to say that you want to be walking around all, uh, I don't give a care anyway. And like it anyway. Like, yeah. you don't want to be the kid who didn't get invited to the birthday party. Yeah. But I think there's something so powerful in just being like, well, that was a fuck up. Anyway, what's up? Yeah. And it's hard for women in particular because there's always that thing of feeling as though or actually living in a world in which people will still keep referencing the one thing over and over and over again. Yeah. So I'm I'm very into this. Yeah. And then… Of course, uh, Rupert Everett got into the game because his his picker was maybe broken the other way around. <laughs> right. So as he reveals in the 22-year anniversary of… Inexplicable. <laughs> my best friend's wedding, he's like, yeah, I didn't think it was going to be good. He said, uh, I didn't want to do it. There were yeah. barely two lines in the script. What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. And he basically said he acted like a big bitch. Yeah. Until he got on set and liked everybody and was like, okay, well, maybe I'll have fun. And he did have fun and they ended up like expanding his role Mm -hmm. so that George became George. Oh, he steals the movie. Like, let's be real. It made his career. Yeah, absolutely. Like his career has been mercurial at best, like, but that was a launch pad for him. For sure. Oh, everybody always wanted to recapture some of that George special right. sauce, right? Like, George, that film attracted Madonna, right? And, like, he was best friends with Madonna for a while, and they did that movie together. Like, he I was, love that that's a line in his bio, yeah, but yes. He's a hot, he was hot shit for a minute he really was of that movie. The movie he, again, looked at initially and was like, oh, this sucks. I'm just going to do it, but I don't, I don't think it's very good. Right. But where she maybe should have trusted her instincts, he went against his instincts or needed a paycheck, one or the other. Yeah. Um, and lived to tell the tale. Well, I feel like we're not very helpful here because how do you tell? Like, what is the right thing then? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I guess the answer is that had he gotten on set and 
not like the people or felt like it wasn't worth it or felt like it was useless, he could have phoned it in. They wouldn't have expanded his role. And, uh, you know, he would have been a footnote and gotten to be grumpy and bitchy about the story somewhere else. But I guess the answer is when you feel your instincts, believe them. And I guess the, the way to kind of marry this up is that he trusted his instincts once he got there and went like, oh, this yeah. is actually good. Like, I'm going to get over myself. Yeah. And there wasn't a, like a, 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 like a, a rogue agent in your ear. Like, the, the difference here, I guess, is there wasn't, he didn't have a James Franco. Right. He didn't right. have an Iago. Yeah. Or maybe he did. Maybe somebody was like, oh, I don't know. You hear about that all the time, actually. Um, Christina Hendricks talks about how her agents were like, do not take that Mad Men pilot. It's going to be like, period. It's not going anywhere. And she was like, bye, and fired them. Right. Um, and went on to become Christina Hendricks. Uh, so, yeah, you don't know who was in his ear or what. But yeah, the sort of the gut of it of, oh, this is going to be fun and I can play even if I'm not the biggest player takes over, which I think is important. I think the the honing of one's gut is important and it's about, yeah, when when you learn to listen to it, I guess. When you learn to listen to it and and why. Like, I think that all of us, what's the takeaway and what's so relatable here is that all of us have been in situations where the instinct is there and there's all kinds of James Franco's like, yeah, you got to do this. And, you know, and this, sometimes I think about feng shui and like, you know, according to some signs, for example, and my ma's readings, it's beware of a person who will like lead you astray, or there's a certain person who won't help you, or someone is going to be a benefactor. And it's hard also to figure out the people in your life who are there who will like guide you or the people who will hold you back. And I think about in this business, someone like Anne Hathaway, you know, at the time she was, what, 25 or 26 years old? Around there. And he was known to be so talented as well. And she's already admittedly, as she said, an insecure person, right? She didn't know what she was doing. She was trying to be someone else. So already she was vulnerable. And he comes along and she thinks he has it all together, that he has better answers than her. And she's like, well, if James wants to do it, then, then maybe I should. Right. We've all been there. Yeah. Yeah, we've all been there. And the thing maybe to remember is that we've all been there and it keeps coming up. When you're in a situation that you shouldn't be, where you've gone against your better judgment, you say, oh, I'm going to do it, and you go against your better judgment. And then it comes up again, right? A few hours or a few weeks later, you have that feeling, oh, I don't know if I should have done this, and you shove it down. And then it comes up again a month or a few weeks later, oh, I don't know if I should have done this. I think if, it, if that happens, like you have to learn to listen to, to that part of you, right? It's, I guess the, the other side of this is that if you're Rupert Everett, uh, that voice didn't come up again. It was a happy, yeah. it was a happy sort of surprise that, oh, I, I'm not feeling my little grumpy voice at all. Where is, where is my grumpy friend? Uh, and I've had that experience on gigs as well, which is wonderful, where you go, I don't know if this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to, oh my God, this is a delight. Yeah. Um, there are things that I remember being kind of skeptical about that years later, I'm like, well, I have all these friends from that and this connection and that job came directly from that. And who knew? Right. So, 
yeah, I think if you hear the voice more than once, yeah, cut your losses. And now what I love is that Anne is like the work here is that let there be no doubt that she was saving this story. It wasn't an accidental, oh, this came up in conversation. Okay, well, I'll just say it now. Like, I didn't really think it through. She's been holding on to this. She's had it all this time. She's chosen this moment after Ocean's 8, a really good year, Mm -hmm. after, like, launching this film that is, you know, obviously hasn't done well critically or commercially, but at a time when we've all kind of noticed there's this, like, new, fresh era of Anne Hathaway. She has no fucks to give. That's right. Where she's like, let me drop this now. This was strategic. This was deliberate. And she's got another movie coming out soon with Rebel Wilson, which is a comedy. It's, it's all, like, it's all part of good work. She's now figured out good work decisions and good work tea to get out there. Well, and I fucking love it. I love that you say she figured it out because to me, I keep picturing her in therapy of all places. I know nothing about Anne Hathaway or her various therapies or not, but I can just picture her going, but he was the one and whoever's with her in therapy going, well, you, you could say that. You could tell, no, I couldn't. I couldn't say that. I couldn't tell people. And then the moment where you realize, oh no, I can. I can say it. It's going to be great. I think she must have felt, yeah, strategic for sure and that it was the right time, but also just amazingly free and open about it. Yeah. So that brings us to Drake. Which on the surface looks like it's a bit of a left turn, but I'm delighted at the ways which it is, in which it is. So Drake just won a Grammy. On Sunday night at the Grammy Awards. And he goes up and he collects his Grammy. Now, just to be clear, he was backstage. Was he not expected to be there? There were multiple reports that he, Kendrick Lamar, and Childish Gambino would not show up. That These big names were skipping the Grammys. He did not walk the carpet. So he basically only hung out backstage until his categories came up and stayed close so that he wouldn't have to walk like around the tunnel and up the stairs and whatever. And they called his name and he was like, all right, I'll go out there. But he did not sit in the audience. Like it wasn't a full participation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he goes up there. Uh-huh. And he says, thank you so much for this award. But I just want to say that if you're making music and people like your albums and are liking your stuff, and I'm paraphrasing, his speech was well done. He didn't stutter or um. Well, if I may interrupt you, the first thing he says is he he looks at his trophy and he says, this is the first time in Grammy's history where I'm basically who I am. And my interpretation of that, which I consider to be 100% accurate, (laughs) is that he won for best rap for God's Plan, which is a rap song. He's won in that category before for Hotline Bling and Take Care, which he did not consider to be rap songs. He considered them to be placed in the rap category because he's black and whatever, urban, like I'm saying that in quotes. And um, the Academy like tells you to stay in your lane when in fact they were pop songs and should have been considered and competing among pop artists and um, in the bigger categories. 
in the mainstream categories. And he's criticized the Academy before for that. So he was being sarcastic. He was being a shit, but like a clever shit, saying, oh, you finally got it right. You finally gave me a Grammy in the right category. My other two didn't count because you put them in the wrong bullshit category. But God's plan, which he won for, is absolutely and clearly hip hop, rap album, ergo. Yeah, a rap record, ergo. And so then he says, and by the way, yeah, if you are somebody who is making music and people like it and they're spending the money they make at their jobs to come and see you, if they're going out in the rain, I think he referenced the rain, if they're coming to see you, oh, you rain are and snow. already <laughs> a success. You are already a success even if people don't know what to do with you or what you're about or if you're like me, a black Jewish kid from Canada and they can't figure out what that is, you don't need big people's approval. And he didn't say you don't need the Grammy's approval in so many words, I think, but he said you don't need the approval of the people who make these arbitrary decisions uh, and had a great kind of metaphor off the top about how what they do uh, as artists is not like sports where it's clear and numeric in terms of who is winning. Uh, that it's alchemy, Um, basically said, as he was holding a Grammy. That it was meaningless. And that the Grammys are kind of bullshit. Yeah. And you don't need them. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. The question that we can't answer today, but we can answer next year or in a few years, Drake is prolific and, like, before long, maybe by the time we hit, like, stop on this recording, he'll have a fucking new song out. Likely. Um... So the thing, the question is, is whether or not he played a long game with the Academy. Because to win a Grammy, you have to self-submit, right? You sign off on your eligibility, your submission, and you, you know, sign the form and you say, hey, Academy, yes, please put me on the ballot. Mm -hmm. There are artists like Frank Ocean who don't participate at all. He's like, Frank is like, I'm not about that life anyway, I don't want to be part of your party, so I'm actually not even going to ask for an invitation. Right. And I would say, just to expand here, that's true of every uh, award ceremony. They can't award you if you don't play the game. That's right. you got to submit. You yes. sign. You, you have to apply. Yes. Yes. You have to apply for membership. That's right. Uh, so, like Hollywood Walks of Fame. I think sure. a lot of people don't know this. You yes. have to apply to get a star on the and Hollywood Walk of Fame. pay for it. 15 grand. Yes. And then they say, yes, you have been granted or not. That's right. So Drake applied. So he put the name out there. Then, you know, we hear, but the thing is he didn't apply last year, right? Like, and we've been hearing about his, like. Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with the Grammy. So he submits and he lets the rumors fly that he's not going to show up. Mm -hmm. Then he does show up, but he doesn't like do the whole rigmarole of the posing and the being in the seats. Well, to be fair. He doesn't let them profit off him, right? Yes. The Grammys, it's great for them to cut to Drake and be like, look, Drake is here. Look, Drake is on the red carpet. He's in his seat. He doesn't allow them to do that. No. Until they actually award him and then he gets up on stage, but then it's his stage and he gets his say before they cut him off. But Mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, we know what he was up there doing. Mm Mm-hmm. So is this a long game? Did he plan it this way all along? Did he say, I'm going to submit, God's plan was such a mega monster hit, 
I'm sure they'll give me something or I'm going to bet on them give me, giving me something. So I'm going to hang around backstage. Then I'm going to drop the hammer on them and basically give them the fuck you for life. Mm-hmm. And I'm never coming back. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see, right? Like I, again, if, if this was a long game, like a strategic, like Anne Hathaway, saving this away and like making sure that this was the moment, the hammer, we won't really know that confirmation until next year or whenever he releases another album and does or doesn't submit. But, you know, I, we had no intention of this podcast being so circular or cyclical, but this is the same thing as sitting around with your buddies and bitching. And when I win the Grammy, when I win a Grammy for a rap record that's actually a rap record, yeah. I'm going to say, you know what? Screw you guys, and I'm never going back. You can totally see that kind of, like, bluster being yeah. said, right? But you don't send your best friend Sean Penn to go do it for you. No, he put his money where <laughs> his mouth is. Yes. But the irony of what you're saying, though, is that if he doesn't submit and Drake is – you know, a huge enough star has the capital that it will, he's going to continue to be just fine. Mm -hmm. But ironically, they're going to be the ones gagging for him. Like Mm -hmm. the Grammys, like all the other award shows, have problems, right? They need people to show up and make them relevant. Although the other night's show was very good by comparison to previous years. Um, It's already going to be their loss, even if he only holds to what he's saying for another couple of years. You know, yeah, his long game can be, oh, he submits again in five years. And they're like, oh, thank you. I I don't know. I I like the ballsiness of it. And I, yeah, I buy that it is, in fact, a long game to play. Would you feel worse about the move if he does submit again next year? I, yeah, I would feel worse about the move. Like, I would say, what was it for then? I mean, the statement stands. It's a true statement because, of course, it's not just about him and his, uh, you know, him and his awards or records, and he's got enough that he doesn't need them. He also got to say that statement to, I think he said, you know, to everyone out there who's working, to people who are younger or coming up. So the statement stands whether or not he goes back and gets more awards. But I think, yeah, I think you're, I think that, I think you won't. I think you won't let them trade on him because again, it's like the, the agents and the writers, ultimately the Grammys need him much more than he needs writers. And it was very clear to you and I how this links to Anne Hathaway and Rupert Everett. Um, but in case it has gotten lost somewhere in the joy of wondering why Entertainment Weekly did a 22 years later (laughs) reunion. Um, I think it's about the moment when you know your limit, right? It's about the moment when you say, okay, now is the time to drop this information. Now is the time to tell the Grammys where to go. Or now is the time, if you're Rupert Everett, to, to show your work and to go for it, even though it's a little bitty baby part that shouldn't matter and winds up mattering. It's about kind of knowing your moment and there's immense power in it. All three of those moves feel very powerful. Which now I'm just going to leave you all with a teaser because we will be continuing that conversation about power and how to spend it next week with our next story. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. 
Until then, hit us up with all your thoughts and your emails. Thanks for staying with us with our unscheduled break. Let us know what you think of everything we talked about and uh, what you commented under the Sean Penn article. In addition to reading those comments or leaving Sean Penn comments, leave comments on our podcast. We'd love to hear your reviews. Also, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Work hard, try your work. We'll be back in a week. Bye. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.